Greetings, rabble rousers. My name is Jessa McLean. Welcome to Blueprints for Disruption, a weekly discussion dedicated to amplifying activism across Turtle Island. Together, we will examine tactics, explore motivations, and celebrate successes in disrupting the status quo. In this episode of Blueprints of Disruption, we're lucky to sit down with two members of the Palestinian youth movement. Laura and Mo join us to discuss just what the fight for return and liberation looked like, particularly for the members of the Palestinian diaspora here in Canada. We explore just what fuels their fire, because although we know most people support their cause and recognize the oppressive situation in Palestine under Israeli apartheid, it's still a contentious battle they have on their hands. The resistance to a free Palestine can be fierce and a political hot potato in Canadian politics. I ask them how they navigate all that. We'll also get into the importance of solidarity networks to the Palestinian movement and recognizing the parallels that exist in various fights across the global south. Here is Return and Liberation with the Palestinian Youth Movement. Welcome, friends. Uh, The first thing, as always, I'm going to ask you to please introduce yourself to our audience. Laura, I'm going to start with you. Yes, definitely. Thank you so much, Jessa, for having us uh, on the podcast. My name is Laura. I'm uh, part of the Palestinian youth movement here in Montreal. Um, I was also part of the student movement back when I was at McGill, um, working with Solidarity for Palestinian Human Rights. Um, And now I've been in the QIM or the Palestinian youth movement for a couple of years. Thank you. Mo, it's nice to see you again. Introduce yourself, please, so everyone knows you. Uh, thank you, Jessa, and thank you for having us on the podcast. Um, my name is Mo Al-Qasim. I'm a member of the Palestinian Youth Movement based in Toronto, and I'm glad to be on, on this show. Thanks for coming. Um, it's definitely been a topic we've wanted to cover here on Blueprints of Disruption, and I particularly asked... Mo, um, who he thinks I should talk to in terms of covering the Palestinian movement here in Canada specifically. And so it's the Palestinian youth movement um, that, Mo, I guess you're most involved with now. I know you've done other work in terms of solidarity work for Palestine. Um, We don't need to mention all of the groups, but uh, what is it about the Palestinian youth movement in particular that has your focus now? I think what's uh, what's unique about the Palestinian youth movement is uh, the fact that we're grassroots uh, completely. Uh, we're independent as an organization and we are focused and centered within the Palestinian and Arab communities. Uh, and that tends to be our, our priority in terms of organizing and mobilizing. Um, we, we see ourselves as a main uh, player in terms of Palestinian national liberation and that we have a vital role within our community and within our movement. Laura, do you feel the same? And, and why do you think you guys are so pivotal in that fight? Like what, what makes it unique? Yeah, I think, uh, first of all, um, the youth are the more, most important sector of our community. Um, they are the newest generation. They're the people that are going to hold the fight and the struggle moving forward. And so focusing on the youth, specifically organizing them, developing them at a young age and re-engaging their role in the larger struggle for national liberation is very important. 
we also I also think that the reason that the, the Palestinian relief movement is so important is that we don't really see ourselves in solidarity with Palestinians um, as much as we see ourselves like young Palestinians and Arabs part of the struggle. Um, you know, a lot of us have families who are either um, there or in refugee camps. So we we see this as a way more holistic struggle that we are part of. Thank you for correcting me there. That's my, you know, perspective as an ally, I think, coming through and not even beginning to understand that lived experience that you folks have or that emotional tie. A lot of us work on campaigns, issue-based campaigns, but I don't think any of them have ever been as personal for me as they likely are for the diaspora of Palestinian folks, which is numbers around 7 million Palestinians that do not live or cannot live in Palestine. So, yeah, that I thank you again for kind of pointing that out because I think that's important. I think that is in part, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but just from my experience of working with Palestinian activists, the the drive is something else. It's it's something very internal. It's necessitated by life and death, like uh, like you say, like your family members. I wonder, um, is that is that a big driver? Is that how you manage to do so much? Like looking at the Palestinian Youth Movement website and the annual report from 2021 lists the amount of activities and campaigns that you folks have worked on, cultural, political, local, global. Um, and you do that all without paid staff. Obviously, money doesn't drive everything, but that is a lot of work for volunteers who likely already have jobs and families and other struggles in life. How do you guys manage to do so much? I guess uh, it's it's the commitment and discipline of our membership and our and our base. Uh, as you mentioned, we don't have any paid staff. Uh, none of our members get any sort of compensation for the work that we do. But there is a drive uh, for us to continue uh, organizing uh, for Palestinian national liberation. Um, and that's something that can be attributed to uh, how dear and how close the cause is to us and how determined we are to see our liberation. Uh, you know, you don't get to the point um, in life where you're organizing 24-7, essentially, uh, for a national liberation cause unless you completely believe in it and you're completely determined on it. Just to add uh, on to what Mo said, um, I think part of it is the importance of framing, you know, the the Palestinian national liberation question um, and where it stands today. Um, I think a lot of the youth um, that organized with us um, came into uh, what we call a post-Oslo world, where essentially a lot of the... Um, the height of the Palestinian resistance um, was at its low um, because the peace process had just happened, quote unquote, peace process had just happened. And 
um, all these Palestinian institutions, which were part of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, were destroyed in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, the General Union for Palestinian Students, um, all the different unions for engineers, for doctors, for women that were all over the world um, were essentially destroyed. And so we came to a world where all of that was destroyed, but we were born into a history where all of that existed, was alive, and there was resistance all around, you know, not just in Palestine, but in all of the refugee camps and in the surrounding Arab countries. Um, and I think that's the drive. The drive is to bring that back and to seek the justice of a full national liberation that is not just, um, you know, based on the human rights of the, of, of the Palestinians that live there, um, but rather the question of the refugees, the question of the prisoners that are in prisons, uh, Zionist prisons that are in consistent contact with the occupier and their uh, worst form of... Um, um, the worst form of uh, oppression in, in prison in prisons. And so I think all of that um, really pushes the youth to kind of regain their role and rebuild what was lost um, in that process. Both of you have mentioned liberation in talking about your work. And a lot of the messaging in the Palestinian youth movement refers to a return what does liberation look like to you, Laura? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, and I think because we're always uh, very, we're, we're so in the struggle, the daily struggle, um, it's hard to imagine, you know, what a free uh, or liberated Palestine is. But the Palestinian youth movement always says until return and liberation, that's kind of our um, motto, if you will. Um, and it's because, the, the question of the refugees is sometimes lost in the question of national liberation, and we see it's one of the most important points. Um, if our refugees can't come back, then we have lost a big part of our liberation, um, and liberation doesn't happen without the return of the refugees. But also we believe in the liberation of, of full historic Palestine from the river to the sea. We believe in the liberation of all of our prisoners, um, which I believe are around 4,500 plus right now in Zionist prisons, many of which are only under uh, administrative detention, um, which means that they have not gone through any kind of trial. They, they are just in prison until further notice. Um, and so that's what we mean by liberation. We believe in a one democratic Palestinian state where everyone is equal and has uh, their full rights. Mo, you're nodding. Is that... Is that your, what you're working towards? Is that the larger goal? Uh, that is what we're working towards, everything that Laura said. What are some short-term goals of the Palestinian youth movement? How are you getting there step by step? I know it seems like very urgent, like that's something that needs to be done now, but clearly you're doing a lot of work that isn't inherently political. Or is it? You know, a lot of the work you do is cultural, but is the cultural political uh, when... You're trying to be erased? I, I mean, our main objective essentially doesn't change. Uh, our main objective is to always mobilize our community uh, at, across all different sectors in, in support of our national liberation. And 
you know, you mentioned seven million or seven million plus Palestinian refugees who can't return. Or, uh, we have a large number of them in North America or across North America, and so we see Palestinians and Arabs as main stakeholders. And as main stakeholders, we need to be at the forefront of our struggle uh, in exile or in the diaspora. Some of the different things that we work on uh, could include uh, anti-militarization campaigns or anti-surveillance campaigns. You know, in the in the era that we live in or that we were, some of us were born into, uh, Palestinian Arab communities are some of the most heavily surveilled communities. Um, activists and uh, you know even regular community members are. Uh, amongst the most targeted uh, in terms of uh, in terms of state surveillance or even at times incarceration um, or repercussions for political dissent. Uh, we also see a role in, in the West or in North America in particular as uh, really halting or stopping the uh, the sale of weapons or the sale of arms to the Israeli state or the Zionist state. Uh, North America in particular is very, uh, very invested in the arming of Israel. And we see that as, as a main objective of ours to hold that and to um, to ensure that that collaboration uh, between the Western states and the Zionist state um, has ceased, right? Uh, we also work on uh, supporting the the different sectors of our movement, uh, so supporting uh, communities uh, who come from the global south as well who have liberation struggles. Uh, we see it as part of our struggle to support them and to show up for them. Uh, the Filipino people have a very active struggle for democracy um, and for liberation in the Philippines. And we consistently work with them. And we see our liberation and our fates as tied to one another. Uh, the student movement and uh, the youth sector is extremely vital for us. You know, the Palestinian National Liberation Movement has had a very uh, active uh, student wing throughout our history, and maintaining that is crucial for our national liberation. Uh, but I'll stop there because I could ramble on for ages uh, about the work that we do. <laughs> you hit on a few things that I definitely wanted to ask you about. One of them is the level of opposition. You spoke of state surveillance and extra scrutiny, possible incarceration. I think like, from again, like I, I hate to draw on my experience, but I, the very little time that I have spent advocating for Palestinian rights was the most hostile in terms of counter protests or, uh, the reactions you got publicly, privately, and it was just really dipping my toes into it. I cannot imagine what it is like being completely immersed. It's, you know, 
yes, there are climate change deniers, but they don't show up in those numbers. Um, and the, the defamation and the level of <laughs> attacks that come at Palestinian activists is so intense. And when you have youth, I worry about them. I'm not like trying to discourage anybody, but how do you folks deal with that kind of combativeness so often, right? Like, I don't think I've done any actions at York, back in my days at York University and the Why You Divest movement. You talked about trying to remove weapons and that was one of the angles, right? One of the tactics used was to get universities to stop funding weapons manufacturers in, in general. It wasn't directly tied, right? But it, it was, it was. And even those faced severe claims of anti-Semitism um, because of the involvement of Palestinian youth. How do you guys protect the youth against this or prepare them for that? I, your youth yourself, you know, how does that weigh on you constantly? That's a really good question. And honestly, the, the short answer is that there's no preparation. It's practice that, you know, a lot of us um, were part of the student movement and students uh, organizing is on campuses that are predominantly Zionist and um, are held together through Zionist funding. Um, and the backlash there is, is very, very strong. Uh, we saw a wave in the last uh, let's say, 10 years since the call for uh, boycott, divestment, and sanction of a lot of the student movement pushing for their universities to divest. Um, and the PYM, uh, part of its work is really supporting the student movement and supporting it against the backlash that it receives. Um, and, um, and we see this backlash consistently happening. The resolutions would pass, and then there would be huge repre repression um, that comes directly from the university, um, not even, you know, Zionist forces that are explicit, but rather the university, which is Zionist, but not so explicitly to many people. Um, and, and so people start wanting to uh, take away their funding in order to pressure the university to take action against these student groups or the student union who has uh, took that uh, which, which, which took a stance based on the voting of many students. And so we see that repression in a lot of ways. And I think the reason we see that repression is that we organize in the imperial core and Israel is predominantly an imperialist project that is very much protected by the United States, Canada, and Europe by funding, by training their forces, um, by weapon manufacturing deals that happen consistently between Israel um, and uh, the U.S. And, and Canada, too. Um, and, so, and, and so we know that part of struggling in the imperial core is, is knowing that the repression also exists here in different ways. Um, but also another important thing about organizing here is that there are many other anti-imperial struggles, which Mo kind of hit on, and, and we see ourselves as part of these larger anti-imperialist struggles um, that called for the national liberation of many other countries, uh, but also the liberation of other people, like the Black people here in North America, um, etc. So I think 
they kind of also help us to stay afloat and help us uh, fight the repression. I also wanted to comment on something really quickly because you said we work on culture, and I feel like that's a really important point that you brought up earlier. Um, we work on culture. Actually, every year we run uh, the Dastan Kenafani Art Scholarship Program, um, which is named after Dastan Kenafani, who was um, a writer, but also um, very involved in politics and the resistance in general. And Hassan Kenafani, although being a writer and an artist, uh, was assassinated by Israel. So we don't see that culture is disconnected. We see that this is an issue of consistent ethnic cleansing by the Zionist regime of all kinds of Palestinian life, including our culture. Um, and so we see that this is also a fight for existence, um, for the existence of the Palestinian people, for their livelihoods. Um, and so culture is a very important part of that. I just wanted to bring bring it back to that. Sorry for jumping in here. No, I think that's important, too, because I, when we look at the indigenous struggle here on Turtle Island, and, um, or the erasure of culture was a huge part in the, the attempt at genocide. And so flexing that culture and reinforcing it and making sure it goes from generation to generation becomes an act of the political. Um, and yeah, you, you see that in the mix of work that goes on with the Palestinian youth movement. I do, I'll share links obviously, but I do encourage folks to really check out the amount of work that they're doing and just like how eclectic it is. Um, it, it's quite interesting. Summer schools, you know, so you're interested in building new leaders, right? So I see that summer schools are part of this. This is so much work. It's very impressive. You know, I, I would like to immerse myself more in it just to experience it. But that's incredible. Do either of you, have you attended the summer school or do you, do you, either of you want to hit on that? I thought that was particularly interesting. I, I would never sign up for summer school, but maybe if they had something like this, I would have. Can I just say, uh, well, I'm, uh, I only wanted to say that summer school is the only type of school that I wouldn't miss out on, I would wake up for. Uh, but I'll defer the answer to Laura. Um, yeah, so we do have a summer school. Um, it happens once every two years. Um, and this year, actually, over 100 Palestinian and Arab youth um, came together for the summer school, which is super exciting. It's been our largest ever summer school. And we had to reject some people from coming um, due to, you know, uh, limitations on space and, 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 uh, and other things. So that was super exciting. Um, it's always different when you're organizing across cities and, and, and countries even to kind of meet up once a year, once every two years in our case, um, and really have this democratic process happen in real life. Um, this is kind of where we do a lot of um, popular education, uh, development of leadership, um, but also um, have our democratic process happen um, where we um, elect new leadership and also vote um, on other things that we want to continue doing. So a convention of sorts as well, is that right? Like an annual general meeting? But like a real one, not like the ones we get in the, in the partisan world, right? Like something that you learn from and, and share within. That sounds almost like a novelty from the spaces that I come from. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> Mo's nodding. <laughs> you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'd like to talk a little bit. You got to, the listeners uh, are involved in Canadian politics, a lot of them. Some of them very probably disillusioned with Canadian politics. How, what is the atmosphere currently? You know, um, I'm just going to, folks, the NDP have recently, you know, adopted a better position. Um, I'll leave it to you folks if you want to kind of develop on that. But has that been helpful to move the discussion forward in terms of electoral politics in the legislature? And any needs that you guys have there or, you know, is there, is there movement there at all for you folks? I mean, we definitely took note uh, and witnessed uh, the NDP shift its position and it's certainly welcome. Um, Obviously a lot of, uh, a lot of organizers and a lot of activists had to put in uh, countless hours of work and dedication in order to uh, move the party to that position. I, I think Jagmeet's position, uh, for one, reflected a segment of uh, pro- progressive thought uh, across the country. Um, although, you know, the critical side of me would say that it came a bit too late, um, but it certainly is welcome, and we're glad that the party and the leadership of the party finally came to that decision and that position. Uh, the the other aspect of it is that we can on, I can only speak to Canada, but the majority of the Canadian public is actually in support of Palestinian liberation or thinks that the Palestinian uh, people are oppressed and have their rights violated consistently. The parties have been out of touch uh, as far as that goes, right? They're they're very out of touch with the wider Canadian public when it comes to Palestine, as well as other issues. Um, and there's definitely the aspect of you know powers and institutions that influence um, the Canadian political parties as as they are. But uh, we haven't seen that massive of a change in terms of public support because that that public support has has existed for a long time it's just that the parties weren't willing to acknowledge it unfortunately the party leadership yeah like you mentioned the amount of effort i've never seen so consistent rallying and organized the most organized resolution pushes always came uh, around the palestinian Resolution and it took various forms based on various needs at the time, right? Um, whether it was the IHRA re- uh, definition or other things that had come up, but so much effort, so much effort to simply get it heard, right? It wasn't a matter of testing it over and over again and convincing and doing the education needed. Because like you said, the support was there. But even within a progressive party, we saw massive efforts to simply stop that from ever getting to the floor. Uh, Because they knew the support would be there. Why? What is it that 
Because I don't think they're out of touch, Mo. They've got pollsters. They pay them lots. Like, so they know. They're in touch. They know what we're thinking, right? They, that's why they didn't ever want it to get to the floor. What is it that stops even, using scare quotes always, people, leftist parties to be so hesitant and, you know, to come too late perhaps, but just why was that so hard? Do you like? Do you have the answer? Maybe you don't. Maybe you have theories, but like, no one can deny that there's never been a climate change thing that's ever been that hard, or indigenous rights, or all these other issues that have come up. I've I've never seen so much resistance to simply being heard. So I think uh, to go back to your earlier point, I think I was being a bit too kind uh, by saying <laughs> that they're out of touch. Uh, <laughs> um, Look, there's many different factors that play into it, uh, but one of the main factors in uh, speaking to the left, uh, whatever we're considering as left, at, at least in, in, in this part of the globe, um, I, I'm going to use the example of the Labour Party in, in the UK. Uh, the... Uh, the leadership of uh, Jeremy Corbyn was was practically under a threat of character assassination, and uh, the smearing or of their political platform. Um, the left has a fear of being smeared and being tarred uh, by baseless, uh, and more often than not. Uh, really falsified and even at times over-glorified charges of uh, anti-Semitism. The, the left hasn't uh, been able to combat it properly, although there are segments of the left and, and sectors within the left and the progressive stream that have pushed hard against those street, uh, against those uh, tars and smears that are leveled against uh, those of us who support Palestinian national liberation. Um, that's one factor to it. I mean, uh, the other factors are definitely the overpowered, let's say, um, political streams uh, that exist uh, Across uh, across our continent, uh, you know, we're living in a province that has that is currently witnessing one of the most uh, vicious uh, governments since the Harris era, uh, and that's the Doug Ford Conservatives, right? So we're living in an atmosphere where the left is weakened as it is, and are very threatened and haven't quite developed the strategy and the tactics to rebuttal um, any of the uh, Zionist uh, strategies as they are. You just like a light bulb kind of went off when you said that. And I think we kind of realized that, but that's at the root of a few of our problems, I believe, that fear of being smeared. I, you know, I read an article today and it was about, you know, anti-communists within the left and it primarily being driven by not wanting to be painted as reds. We're reds, right? Like, um, 
Very interesting. Thank you for bringing that up because, yeah, I think like, yeah, that is a huge impact. I always draw it down to courage. Perhaps it's a communications issue. I would like to say it's like, it's courage though. You know, I don't want it finessed. I guess there must be methodical ways to counter the Zionist narrative. And I'm sure like you guys have really worked on that. And there's a lot we can learn from you folks there. But I think there's a part of me that just wants people to say it is how it is and find people to come around, you know? And I think, I don't think they know what people are ready for and what people will think of certain smears. Like I'd rather be smeared as an anti-Zionist or a communist than a centrist (laughs) or someone defending what we see, the status quo. So sorry for like my interjection there. I just felt like it was part of that larger discussion that we have here on the show on like, what is the problem with the left sometimes, you know? And yeah, Laura, like, how do you, how do you feel about it's, the Palestinian movements within the Canadian space? Is it being well received or, you know, are we, are we seeing growth there? Yeah, I think, um, I think, um, I mean, I can speak for Montreal specifically and Canada generally. I think, yes, they are very well received. I think there are, uh, there's a large um, Palestinian and Arab community that is the base for, for this movement and that continues to push this movement forward um, through all the different events and actions that we do, whether it's protests, cultural events, um, these things are consistently happening. Um, and I think that, you know, the movement comes in a lot of different ways. And so people come um, into, into touch with the movement, you know, either on their campus or, um, in their union, you know, like um, around 70% or more of Quebec unions have at some point passed the Palestine. Um, I heard the statistic the other day and I was really shocked that more than 70% of uh, Quebec unions have passed a, a Palestine solidarity um, resolution of some sort, right? That's um, incredible. And, and that's mind-blowing. Um, yeah, it is. It is. And so... Um, the movement does have a base and the base is, is wide and it varies. And there's a lot of solidarity groups also that, you know, work for work on, on the Palestinian uh, movement in general or different parts of the movement. Right. Um, you know, just here in Montreal, we have two, like around four student groups um, at universities other than the Palestinian youth movement, other than the institutions that also hold um, that are either Arab or Palestinian, and then some other solidarity groups like BDS Quebec, etc. And so all of these played all these different roles in order to build the broader movement um, and, and allow us to kind of propel the narrative and, and, and change the even the political narrative, right? Because there are two narratives, you know, um, there's a narrative around apartheid, which kind of limits the question of what are Palestinians really looking for? Um, and there's the, the, the narrative of a full national liberation question. Um, and those two are in a, in a lot of ways different. And we've seen, especially after the summer of 2021, um, which is called, um, which was called the Battle of Safe and Quds, where um, thousands of people were in the streets in Montreal and Toronto. Um, you know, this was actually, I've been in Montreal for 10 years, and this was the biggest 
uh, mobilization for Palestine that I've seen. Um, and so I think the movement is growing. Um, and I think the movement here also takes a lot of its pulse from the movement back home. So when the movement back home um, is at its height, we see a lot of mobilization here because we are following what's happening back home. And right now is the Global Week of Action for the Palestinian Youth Movement. Is that mostly centered on political prisoners in Zionist prisons? So um, I'll speak a little bit about the specific um, action and other actions that we're having this week. So um, there were 50 Palestinian political prisoners that were on hunger strike. Um, They ended their hunger strike recently. Um, And hunger strikes have long been... um, a tactic used by Palestinian prisoners for their freedom. And a lot of Palestinian political prisoners have actually gained freedom this way. Um, And um, the prisoners movement in general has gained a lot of, um, a lot of its rights in Zionist jails through its hunger strikes and its its general, um, you know, um, resistance against, uh, against the different, forms of repression the Zionists um, used against them, you know, including having something so simple as a radio um, and their cells was part of what they won through their hunger strikes and their um, struggle. And so recently, those 50 Palestinian political prisoners uh, went on hunger strike. So we called for a global week of action, but they recently suspended their their hunger strike. Um, But also in the Palestinian Authority prison, prisons right now, which are in full security coordination with the Zionist regime, there are po- uh, political prisoners who are on hunger strike again. And, and we see the Palestinian Authority as just another form of Zionist repression because they are in full security coordination with the Zionist regime. They actually, um, a lot of the prisoners that are now in Zionist regimes were first imprisoned by the PA and handed over um, to the Zionists. And so they're in full security coordination. um, And that's the result of the Oslo process that I was talking about earlier. Um, And so the Global Week of Action is really to bring to the forefront the the issue of of Palestinian political prisoners. And and this issue varies, right? Like in, um, we have women prisoners, we have children prisoners. Most people don't really even know that because most of our prisoners are men, that's true, but those still exist. And um, and the, the issue of prisoners is not only that, you know, they imprison men that are part of the resistance, which is also, you know, illegal as an, as an occupying power, but also that they, um, there's a lot of um, medical negligence in Israeli prisoners, which actually causes the death of a lot of our prisoners. Um, and so in the Global Week of Action, um, a lot of our, our chapters were having different actions, including popular education, films about prisoners, or just protests. Here in Montreal and also in Toronto, we're also having um, an action for George Abdullah. George Abdullah is actually Lebanese, not Palestinian. Um, and he was um, a huge part of the Lebanese and Palestinian resistance in Lebanon at the time, um, and uh, is now held in French prisons. Um, and at some point, he was uh, bound to be released, but there was a huge there was huge pressure from both French and uh, uh, sorry from American and Zionist uh, lobbies 
to not release George Abdullah, and he's been in prison um, for a very, very long time now. And so on on the, I think it's the 36th anniversary, 39th. Um, I don't know, Mo, if you remember the number. Um, 39th anniversary um, of his imprisonment in French jails. And so we're having an action in solidarity with him and we're collecting signatures um, for a letter that we've written in solidarity with him. Um, and, you know, that also comes back to how the imperial, the imperialists are a huge part of our struggle for, for, for a huge part of the repression of our struggle for, for liberation. Sorry for the long answer. No, because that's critical. Because going back to what Mo said earlier, you know, in public opinion, and people may not know what the solution is, and, and they have a general idea that Palestinians are, I think Mo said, oppressed. But I don't think they know the extent, the, most of the public don't know the extent of oppression um, or the extrajudicial killings. And one thing that we're starting to see more of on social media in terms of Palestine is the evictions that are happening and the demolishing of Palestinian communities. People see it. Anyone can watch that and get mad. It's someone being evicted from their home. Very visceral images, right, that that come out, thankfully, that we can witness. But can you help place that in the broader perspective? You talk about neocolonialism on your website and its its need to be erased in order to, to reach the goals of liberation for Palestinian people. What role do these evictions that people are seeing play in that? What's going on there? The ethnic cleansings that we're witnessing right now are definitely intensified. Um, in terms of the point that our struggle is at. But it's by no means uh, a surprise to Palestinians or Arabs. Um, ethnic cleansing is a continuous process when you're living under a colonial case or under a colonial regime, which Israel is. Um, the uh, the images that we see, and thankfully to social media, uh, people back home, our people are consistently showing the images and the video recordings of what's happening to them. And they're spreading them out to the world for them to, for the world to see that it's not apartheid only, although apartheid is a part of it and it does exist. It's the fact that we live under a settler colonial regime and that Palestine is at the heart of an anti-imperialist struggle and that the Pal Palestine and the Arab region is subject to neocolonialism. Our institutions, if not subservient to Western imperial interests, would be demolished and or targeted, right? governments, um, people's uh, movements are all under that threat. And Palestine is at the forefront of it in, in a sense, right? Because essentially Israel is, uh, and Laura hinted at it, uh, 
Israel is a Western uh, intervention or a Western creation in a way uh, at the heart of the Arab region. So it guards the interests um, of those uh, nation states and it furthers them in other aspects throughout and we see that throughout history the exploitation of resources the uh, targeting of movements and governments um, is all done in coordination between the US uh, primarily and Israel uh, as well as other countries who who subscribe to that agenda yeah i mean on the on the topic of of um, of home de- demolitions actually home demolitions are also um a collective punishment tool that you know the zionist regime uses against um many of uh, the resistance and the combatants so that if you know these people are unable to be found by the zionist forces um, then they would threaten them by demolishing their home, by imprisoning their families. And so, you know, the Zionist regime is really um, in every aspect of Palestinian life. And it's, it's, they're not just after you because you did this or that, but everyone is in collective punishment all, of, all the time. Um, and that's because, in essence, it's an expansionist project um, that is not limited to you know, where they stand right now and, and will continue to expand as long as they have the military and economic power to do so, um, supported by the imperialists. Um, and in terms of talking about new colonialism too, I mean, the Palestinian Authority is part of that project as well. And, and they're and they're one of the, the you know, they're, they're, they're a big part of the problem through their security coordination, through um, a lot of the intelligence that they provide to the Zionist regime, um, all of that is is um, is part of the neocolonialist project, and a lot of the normalizing Arab states, um, who although their their people might not agree with the normalization, they are neocolonialist states with the the you know the ruling class's um, interests are aligned with with the imperialists. Can I can I add on to that? So expanding or expanding or just picky I don't know what the term is uh, piggyback is it English is not my first language uh, on what Laura said <laughs> um, so the passing authorities but you know in traditional Marxist terms you would call a comprador class uh, they're they're a local elite uh, they're not exactly the bourgeoisie class that you would level with the Israeli bourgeoisie uh, who, or who could at any moment in time uh, be on, the, on, on similar footing even. Uh, they're employed exactly by the Zionist colonial project. Uh, so they act as an extension of them and the Palestinian Authority uh, they do that and they secure their profit and their interests through being arms of the Zionist regime. 
right? So it, it's a totally different sector, if you will, or a different class from the rest of Palestinian society and the Palestinian struggle. They're not considered part of our struggle. Um, and they're very, very few and elite in that sense. That seems like a very accurate class analysis there when you described the Palestinian Authority. I think that would surprise some of our listeners. Is that a controversial position within Palestinian activism? I I wouldn't say so. I think it's actually I, I think it's actually a very popular position. It's one that's not been discussed frequently. Um, but it's definitely one that you would hear across the Palestinian communities if you if you speak to you know your average Palestinian. They don't believe in the Palestinian Authority as a leadership or as an institution. Um, and the Palestinian community is very knowledgeable on on the history. So they know that the Oslo quote unquote peace process purposefully destroyed their institutions and national leadership and then replaced it with a comprador class to obstacle any attempts at reviving a national liberation movement or creating a leadership for the people. That creates a kind of a political conundrum, right? So are your appeals then by necessity to the international community always? Like, is that... Sorry, I'm struggling here just with so many Palestinians not living in Palestine and the power structure that exists there. Where does this liberation come from then? It, like, how do we get those 7 million folks and all of their allies to make a difference? You know, like, just help me, help me here. Because I feel like the international community has failed so far, right? Like, that's really... Um, I'll try, I'll try my best to kind of um, draw an image here. But, um, I mean, although the PA exists, we can see right now in Palestine um, that there is a lot of forms of a lot of different formations of of popular um, resistance that are consistently happening, um, and so um, these people don't really um, agree with um, with this class and continue to do you know what they want. And for example, the Janine refugee camp, which is in the West Bank, is a camp where neither the PA forces nor the Zionist forces have been able to enter easily, right? Um, and is completely protected. Um, another important part is that Gaza um, is technically a form of liberated land um, that is fully controlled by the Palestinians internally, although its borders, its 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 sea um, are controlled by the Zionists, but there is consistent um, resistance happening there. And so um, as a result of the material conditions all over Palestine, there have been new formations that have continued to uh, resist and um, 
organize themselves in all the different ways. And in Gaza, um, there were the march uh, marches of return, um, where every Friday for the longest time, um, thousands of people would march towards the Gaza border. Um, which is the main point where the IOF or the Israeli uh, occupation forces have all their, you know, um, apparatus um, to make sure that no one crosses that border or no no movement happens there. Um, and the, and that was the, these were forms of popular resistance that went on for a very long time in Gaza. Um, and so, you know, and then. Also, in the refugee camps, you know, there still continues to be some forms of organizing um, under different banners um, and different movements that go up and down, I would say. It sounds like the left anywhere, right? Like a a contingency of resistance, but um, needing something whole. I guess that's where you folks come in. Um, It must be so important for you to be in touch with folks on the ground in Palestine to identify these different struggles, amplify them, you know, move in parallel with them and their needs. Uh, I imagine you guys have great stories of resistance from inside the occupied territories. And, you know, we, we don't have time for them all here, but I encourage folks to, to seek those out as much as possible because it sounds so daunting, but when then Laura speaks of the different pockets of resistance or different roles that different areas are playing and and pushing back, it's it seems more promising, I think, than it did to me when we started this episode. Just to uh, you know um, confirm what you're saying, um, you know, people were all were never scared that the resistance in Palestine will stop. Um, you know, very popular um, Palestinian figure, let's say, Basil Arraj, um, said that, you know, on average, still there's resistance happening every single day in Palestine, and that has never stopped um, and will never stop until liberation. And, and I think that that is what we've seen. And, you know, the waves come and go, but the consistency is is, is there. Do you drive some of your, your courage and motivation from hearing those stories? We, I can only speak for myself, at least in this particular context, but yeah, I definitely do. If you, if you take a look at a Palestinian who's under, who lives under siege, who has been amputated, uh, who lives in extreme poverty that even, even by the standards of, uh, the standards that we live in the West, it wouldn't be acceptable or humane uh, not that any form of poverty or impoverishment is ever humane when you look at that and you see them continuously resisting you have to you have to look at yourself and really find that drive uh, and you you have to sort of steamroll through all the obstacles and and the you know the forms of repression that we face here, so we see the resistance back home as an, an encouragement, um, as fuel um, for us to keep going. I'm glad you've got fuel, because it's a tough road, you know. From what I've seen, friends in the movement go through. 
And it, it's even me as a, so removed um, from any of these stories, always thought to myself, like, I think I was doxxed one time after doing a, all I did was marshal. <laughs> all I was was a marshal at uh, some uh, a rally at York University. And then I ended up getting doxxed. And that was, for me, it was super upsetting. But the only thing that made me feel better was thinking, don't be such a baby. Like, literally, people are fighting for their lives in terms of this cause. A few phone calls from Zionists on my cell phone is something you're just going to have to deal with. Um, but, you know, I can make light of it because it was just so fleeting. It, was, it wasn't something so sustained. And I know both of you are so, and a lot of Palestinian youth are really heavily involved in the movement. And we've already talked about why, right? I think that's that's obvious why. So I'm glad that there's some fuel that lights your fire. And I always enjoy or organizing with Palestinian activists because of the joy that still exists in the actions that I have done, despite the heavy, heavy, heavy material that we're talking about, right? Like exile and poverty and apartheid and the barriers and still there's always dance or song or something warm that comes from it I can't explain it as an outsider I suppose but it's just something very unique that I've only ever experienced within those circles um, because I frankly don't don't know how you do it and I think I said the same thing to the folks I was interviewing from land back, you know, facing down um, OPP officers all the time and injunctions and just that's heavy. That's a lot of bombardment mentally, sometimes physically. Right. And um, I appreciate that you guys fight through that. I do. Um, it amazes me the level of resilience in, in, in your work and, you know, I don't know if I'd be able to do it, to be honest. Uh, so the least I can do is share uh, how and why you do what you do so that folks can perhaps jump in and help or do something similar for things that matter to them. But if you could have the folks that are listening help you out even more, what would that look like for the Palestinian youth movement? You're probably talking about mostly um, settler allies, like just demographically speaking. What's our role in helping the Canadian diaspora of Palestinians? She's pointing at you, Mo. <laughs> so there's, uh, thankfully, there's a role for everyone. Uh, and, and, and our struggle, so our struggle is not one that's just for Palestinians and Arabs. It's, it's, it's a revolutionary struggle. It's the question of our, of our lifetimes, you know, and that's what Hassan Kanafani taught us, that it's a struggle for every revolutionary uh, who has a stake in the liberation of peoples, right? So... If they're Palestinians or Arabs who fall within the youth demographic, they're more than welcome to get in touch with us and to get involved with us, um, you know, if they're capable and uh, willing. Uh, if they're members of the Arab community at large, uh, 
they can come out to our events, they can uh, support us and show up, um, you know, they can donate to us if they wish and if they're capable to, right? Uh, they can amplify what we put out there, uh, the narrative that we're constructing uh, in this era. Um, to our solidarity partners, you know, building your struggle is very important to us. Uh, the, existence of, the existence of other people's struggles only amplifies uh, you know, anti-imperialism and anti-colonialism uh, in a global context, right? So building up your own communities is also equally important to us, right? Uh, building up your institutions and organizations that, quite frankly, challenge both domestic and foreign policies uh, of, of the nation states that we live in. Uh, that's very crucial to the success of people's movements. Well, that's good because that's mostly what the folks listening are trying to do. Um, better their unions and better their communities and break down the structures that make it almost impossible for folks to see real change. So um, I think your words will fall on friendly ears. And I said this before, but in the show notes, we will share as many resources as we can that will link you back to the Palestinian youth movement and the global week of action they're having, as well as any of the other topics that we brought up. We will try to continue this discussion offline as well as we usually do. I want to thank you so much uh, for coming on here, sharing your motivations, the stories of Palestine and the struggles I wish your job was easier. I am glad that you are doing it, though. I do appreciate it. Um, do you have any parting words that you would like to, to share with anybody? Thank you so much, Jessa, for having us. It's honestly been a pleasure um, speaking with you about this. Um, I mean, parting words is usually it's really the revolutionary optimism that we all have and our strong belief in in the success of our national liberation project and all um, struggles um, for justice that, that keep us going. And I hope that other people um, also keep that energy going and all the struggles that they're working on. And, you know, people are also always um, welcome to volunteer with the Palestinian youth movement if they would like. Thank you so much for having us, Jessa. It's, it's been truly a pleasure and an honor um, to be on this podcast. The pleasure is all mine, folks. Thank you so much. Like in all things that we do, there is a team behind Blueprints of Disruption. I want to give a big thank you to our producers, Santiago, Hello Quintero, and Jay Woodruff. Our show is also made possible by the support of our listeners. So if you appreciate our content and would like to become a patron, please visit us at www.patreon backslash BP of disruption. So if you know of any work that should be amplified or want to provide feedback of our show, please reach out to us on Twitter at BP of disruption.